0: are you willing to stand on the authority of God's word? When opposition comes to the direct teachings of Jesus, are you willing to stand on the authority of God's word? Christians for centuries have been doing this. In the early 1500s, the church went through a period that we now call the Reformation It was a time when corruptions were occurring in the Roman government, as well as in the Roman Catholic Church of the time period. We call it the late medieval period. Um, The Roman Catholic Church was specifically doing things like uh, selling indulgences. Essentially, these were things that they would sell in exchange for spiritual blessings and more rewards in heaven. So it meant that someone could buy with money spiritual things. Now for us, we hear this, we think, or I hope we would think, that this error is obviously wrong. It's the kind of teaching and other kinds of corruptions like it uh, that revealed a deeper issue. It wasn't just about indulgences, but it was a deeper issue of authority, indeed what their ultimate spiritual authority was. Like, where did they find their very foundation of belief? When they looked for, when they asked the question, what do we believe and how should we live? Here's what they would say We will obey the Bible plus the Pope. And they would both be on the same plane. So when you're trying to ask a question, what do we believe? The Bible had the same authority as a Pope. We would deny such things as that. So they had the same spiritual authority. It was guys like Martin Luther and several other reformers who would stand against such spiritually destructive beliefs. So our beliefs do not come from man, but they come from God, and they come from God alone. And we know that God has spoken authoritatively through his word and through his word alone. Martin Luther wrote extensively about this throughout his ministry, even before the Reformation, and he specifically talked about how someone enters into a relationship with God. He would say it's by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, upon the Word of God alone, and all of this is to the glory of God. That's what we would believe. In 1950, sorry, not 19, in 1521, the breaking point of the Reformation would happen. He was put on trial, and before the emperor of Rome, he was asked to recant these beliefs, to say, I no longer believe them anymore. If he did not do this, it would essentially mean that he would be excommunicated from the church, he would lose his social position, and he would become an outcast. He was a lowly German monk, and he stood before the Roman emperor. So in a sense, his very life was at stake. So think about how you would feel in such a moment like that. He felt the weight of the time and the moment upon him, and when he was asked to answer what he would do, here's what he said, my conscience is a prisoner of God's word. I cannot and I will not recant, for to disobey one's conscience is neither just nor safe. God help me. Amen." So Luther, by saying something like that, would stand. Now, the question for him was whether or not he would stand firmly on the authority of God's word alone. And for us, in our world today, the question is the same. Are we willing to stand on the authority of God's word alone? This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 22 verse 30, and this bleeds over into chapter 23. So today we're in Acts chapter 23, verse 30. We'll go all the way to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you should find a pew Bible around you. There's some hardback black Bibles around you. You could find this passage on page 932. And if you're here with us today and you don't own a copy of the Bible, we love to give out Bibles just as a gift for you. Uh, As you walked in, you might have noticed there's some bookshelves, there's some Bibles over there. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to have one of those. So just accept that as a gift from us. Take one of those as you go. Uh, But for now, feel free to use the one that's located around you and join me as we read our passage for today in Acts, at the very end of Acts chapter 22. The author, Luke, says this. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part, of were, one part of them were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is res- with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man, for if a spirit or an angel, for what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome." You'll notice that Paul here has found himself in quite the mess. Now, if you're just entering into this passage, you're probably quite confused and you probably have a few questions. I know I did when I first just read this passage, like I would ask, why is Paul being slapped? And what's a white wall got anything to do with what's going on here? And why is everybody so angry? Okay, There's a reasonable question to ask. Come to a passage like this, it's helpful to know the context of what's going on so that we can answer such questions. Maybe you had the same questions as you read through them as I did. Uh, well, the Roman commander, or the tribune as it's called here, is trying to find out the same thing. He's trying to figure out the answer to these questions as well. He's trying to figure out why Paul is being so adamantly accused by the Jews. And it's understandable why he would feel this way. When the Roman tribune, this is the commander of the people, first found Paul, he had been violently beaten by a mob of people, very angry at Paul. And he just comes in and, and arrives on the scene. When he asked the crowd what happened, the text tells us, you can look in chapter 21, verse 34, it says this Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So this crowd is just going wild and they continue to violently attack Paul so they take Paul and they put him into custody in a Roman in some Roman barracks so there the Roman tribune assumes that Paul's done something very seriously wrong and it's probably right for him to assume this so while he's in the bar- in the barracks the tribune asks him are you a one of these Egyptian revolutionaries well that sounds i guess it was reasonable to him and Paul just claims no i'm I'm a Jew. (laughs) These people are attacking me." A little later, Paul asks to speak to the crowd, and so Paul gives a speech to them. And then (laughs) this only serves to stir them up even more. They get more angry at Paul, and they shout to put him to death. So the Tribune then brings Paul back into the barracks. The Roman Tribune still has no answer to why everybody's going so crazy. And this time, because the Tribune is just trying to get an answer, they say, oh, well, maybe we should just flog Paul ourselves, figure out what's going on. I guess it sounded reasonable to them. I don't know. He wants to know why the crowd's been shouting at him like they have, but then Paul reveals that he's a Roman citizen. So apparently it's not lawful for Roman citizens to be flogged or to be bound, to be put into custody like Paul was. In the Tribune, he recognizes, well, I've just done both of these things, so he's kind of afraid at what's happened. So with nowhere else to go, that's where we find ourselves in this passage. He resorts to getting together this council of people among Jews. They're called the Sanhedrin. And maybe they can find out why everyone is so angry with Paul. So this is where our passage begins. Paul's body has been broken down, as we've seen through all the violence. But as we'll see, even though his body has been broken, his will and his gaze... Is powerful and bold. He follows the very footsteps of Jesus, who also went into trial before the Sanhedrin. So, as we work through this passage, here's our main point. And what I hope we'll see in this passage, what I hope is the main point of this message it's this As we stand for Jesus at his word, Jesus stands with us. As we stand for Jesus at his word, Jesus stands with us. So we'll have two main points this morning following this very same pattern. But before we expound those, I just want to show you briefly where this idea comes from. Because we're going through a narrative. It's kind of difficult to figure out where you would find these kinds of things. So I just want to help us. It's not immediately obvious, but there's details in the narrative that help us get there. So first, I want you to notice, you can look down in your Bibles. We have two different settings in this passage. So look in verse 30. Notice how it says this is the next day. So we're in the daytime. And Paul is brought before the chief priests and councils at this day. This would have been the gathering of what we call the Sanhedrin. The second setting, you can scan down and look in verse 11. Now notice it says the following night. So here, Paul apparently is alone inside the Roman barracks after going through all this. So you notice there's a shift in the time of day, you see. Now, next, I want you to notice something else. There's two instances for the word stand. At the end of verse 30, if you have an ESV translation of the Bible, it says that the tribune brought Paul down and set him before them. If you have an NIV translation of the Bible, I think it actually preserves the original meaning of the word there. It says that the tribune had him stand before them. So Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin and he's about to go through a trial of sorts. And then, scan down again at the end of the day, in the nighttime, notice who's the one standing. Who do you see? It's the Lord Jesus, who is standing there in verse 11. So we have two settings, and we have two people standing. Now, we should ask the question, what should we be asking as we approach this tet? As we approach this text, if we're just reading through this passage, what would be the question that's on our mind? Well, our question would be the same question as the Roman Tribune. We're left wondering when he is going to have his question answered about what's going on with this Paul. So again, in verse 30, we see that the Roman Tribune desired, it says, to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So why is Paul such a lightning rod? He just shows up and things go crazy. He wants to know why this is going on. Why is this man so controversial? He will get this question answered within the passage, but before we get there, let's see our first point. The first is this, stand for Jesus at his word. Stand for Jesus at his word. I'm taking the text and applying it directly to us. We should do very much the same as Paul would do, stand for Jesus at his word. We see this from verse 30 all the way to verse 10. When Luther was put before the emperor of his time period, he had had that choice, remember? Would he stand for the authority of God's word, or would he allow something else to take the place of God's word as the authority in his life? He came to a tipping point. Now, friends, I mentioned earlier, we face this very same question and perhaps more often than we would expect in our lives. And the first place is not outside of us, but inside of us, in the place of our hearts. Will we stand for Jesus at his word in our hearts and in our lives? We, we must stand with Jesus with a clear conscience. That's the first subsection of this first one. So look in verse one with a clear conscience. It says about Paul, says this, in looking intently at the council, Now, I just love this about who Paul is. He might have been beaten, but he's not broken. He peers with firm resolve directly at this council. Now, he's on trial, but he's not backed into a corner. He's speaking directly to them. So the text continues Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So here, Paul proclaims with boldness that he's lived his life with a clear conscience. He has fulfilled his duty before God as a messenger of the gospel. But this is uh, also the answer to the charge that the crowds have been putting on him. So we see back in uh, chapter 21, verse 28, they accused him of something. They accused him, it says there, of teaching against the people, the law, in this place. So this is talking about the Jewish religion in general. Now Paul sees the Jewish religion as a fulfillment, or the Christian religion, as a fulfillment of the Jewish religion. So he's not speaking against them, he's actually living in fulfillment of them. So Paul responds, he just says, by no means. I've been blameless according to all these things. And so we continue in verse 2. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Okay, so why is the high priest so angry with Paul? Well, it's because he's offended at his statement. Paul has said one sentence, and he's immediately rebuked as if he's a liar. I think the high priest is offended because he thinks Paul, indeed, has not been blameless in his character. So let's continue reading verse 3. Paul said to him, "'God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall.'" Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Now there's some irony going on here with with Paul and this high priest. See, the high priest was supposed to be the representative of God to the people and the representative of people to God. Yet at the very moment he rebukes Paul for being a liar, he himself breaks the law by striking Paul. So he's the one who's actually breaking the law here. So in reality, Paul wasn't the one lying. It was the high priest. So Paul was blameless. Therefore, Paul rebukes him. He defiantly responds, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, this is a curious, curious statement, right? I mean, what's going on with something like this? I think there's a couple of things going on here. By saying that God is going to strike him, Paul is pronouncing God's judgment on this high priest. And since the high priest is living in direct opposition to God's law, he himself is the one who will be struck. The high priest is one who will be judged by God. Now, what's ironic is that this actually happens 10 years later. We don't read about it in the Bible, but Jewish writings would say this very high priest was struck down by a band of revolutionaries who had come after him. So in a way, this actually happens. Paul acts somewhat like a prophet. This is what's going to happen to this guy. Notice again, he calls him a whitewashed wall. So in this, he's saying that this high priest is being a hypocrite. The imagery is that of a wall. You know, if you, if you have this, this wall that's just completely breaking apart, you put some, put some white paint on it, it might look nice. But the imagery is this. The, white, the wall is decrepit, but he's just covered it up with white paint. In the very same way, he's looking at this high priest saying, you might look impressive in your white priestly garb, But inwardly, you are dark and corrupt. That's what Paul is saying to this high priest. Now, what's interesting, if we study our Bibles, if that brings something to mind for us, Jesus would use this very same rebuke earlier when he's in front of the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, Jesus would pick up on this prophetic language and say that the the scribes and the Pharisees are being hypocrites. He picks up this language from Ezekiel 13. So Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees as being hypocritical in their day too. So when Paul rebukes the high priest, he's using the same language. This is a strong rebuke toward the high priest. We should recognize this. Verse 4 continues. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So in the council meeting then, some rebuked Paul for what he's just done. Reviling the high priest was against the law, and Paul then quotes it. That's what we see at the end of that verse in Exodus 22. So that's what Paul quotes. And that's where that quote comes from, Exodus The people have taken Paul's actions here to mean different things. So I'm just walking us through this, and now people interpret this in different ways. Some speculate, they think Paul might himself be in sin here. He's doing something wrong. So they would speculate that he actually didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. Um, He had been gone for a while. You know, he was on missionary journeys. They think he might actually be apologizing to him here. Others think that Paul actually didn't know who gave the orders for him to be struck So we know that Paul's eyesight wasn't very good, so maybe they speculate he couldn't see very well in the room, and so, I don't know, I think that's pretty speculative. But what I think this passage is making very clear to us is this, that Paul is being accused of disobeying Jewish laws when in reality he's the only one upholding them. So I think Paul, when he responds to the high priest, is being somewhat sarcastic, Paul is making known that he knows who the high priest is, and the high priest himself uh, was one that he was going to present himself to. Here I think we're seeing that Paul is respecting the office of the high priest. He's seeing the man who's there, but he's not respecting the man who's in the office of high priest. So he essentially says, I did not think a man of such standing as this should, should give orders That you've given. I didn't think such a man could even be a high priest. So Paul submits himself, even as he's speaking, to the authority of God's word, and he calls out the high priest for not doing the very same thing himself. Now, I think it's worth stopping here for just a moment. Remember, we're standing for Jesus at his word. And earlier, I said that standing for Jesus starts in our own hearts in our own conscience as we see paul making such rebuke to the high priest he does so with a clear conscience himself so this is a battle but the battle is not outside of us but inside of us it's a battle for your own purity of life before we battle to opposition before we battle opposition to god outside of us we should battle opposition to god inside of us now i think the puritan Richard Sibbs, for helping me to see this, he says this, and he just says it eloquently, so I'm going to quote him. This, then, we are always to expect that wherever Christ comes, there will be opposition. When Christ was born, all Jerusalem was troubled. So when Christ is born in any man, the soul is in an uproar, and all because the heart is un- unwilling to yield itself to Christ in his rule. So just as Christ faced opposition in the world when he came in the flesh, he faces opposition in our hearts when he, enters, when he enters by his spirit. The Bible tells us this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah said that in chapter 17 of his book. So our first stand for Jesus must be against not others, but our own sin. It should be inward. Now, if you're here this morning, I'd like to ask you, you are here, so I'm going to ask you, have you dealt with your own sin, your own rebellion against God, what Alex talked about just a moment ago? Now if you're here, you recognize your sin, you're, you're burdened in your heart, and you feel like you need to be released from such a burden, I want it to be clear today that Jesus welcomes you. He takes your sin seriously. He does call you to repent, but he welcomes you. See, it's the truth that none of us have a perfectly clear conscience. We all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. Yet that's the very reason why Jesus welcomes us, because he's the one one and the only one who's lived perfectly in this world, and he delights to enter into the hearts of those who are burdened by sin. He delights to take those from you as a good high priest for you. He lived a perfect life, and he took the punishment for your sin on himself if you would but place your faith in him. And if you do that today, all of your sins will be forgiven. So the question for you, if you've never done such a thing like that, will you take your first stand for Jesus by placing your faith in him? Knowing that he welcomes you, he delights to take your sins upon himself. Take your first stand there. And if you're a Christian here, having already placed your faith in Christ, want to ask you, are you living with a clear conscience? Are you standing for Jesus in your own life? Or are you following the passions of your flesh? You could be following the passions of your Savior. Dear brother and sister, I want to remind you this morning, if you have already placed your faith in Christ, Jesus has said that no one will snatch you out of his hand, meaning your salvation is eternally secure based purely on the grace of God in him. But we do grieve him when we stray, we break his heart when we sin. So, will you today turn back to his loving arms and submit to his loving commands for your life? That's who Jesus is for you. So, standing for Jesus starts in the heart, but we must stand for Jesus in our lives on the basis of God's Word. When worldly opposition comes against the direct teachings of God and Scripture, we must stand against them. We must. starts in the heart, but we must stand against them outside of us. In our world today, opposition to Jesus typically shows itself in moral issues, in the category of, how are we to live? That's typically where we see it, but it ultimately arises from the question, what do we believe? So the what do we believe informs how do we live? They're categories, they look separate, but they're often together. This is true for many issues, but one of the most pressing issues of our day today is that of abortion. Friends, as believers in Christ, we ought to rejoice. That federally sanctioned taking of innocent human life is no longer allowable in the federal courts of our nation. We should rejoice at this. This is a day to rejoice in what God has done in protecting the lives of the unborn. This is the very thing that many Christians have been working for for decades been working to care for others. Even we as a church family have been involved in things like this. We support this ministry that I prayed for, Pregnancy Centers in Boston, one called Boston Center for Pregnancy Choices. So we do rejoice and we continue for the ongoing care for the vulnerable in our world. That's the very thing at stake with this issue. Now that's the how do we live, but what do we believe? See, abortion is ultimately a theological issue It shows itself in the world, but it arises from a disbelief in what the truth is. See, very clearly in Scripture, we read passages like this one in Psalm 139, verse 13. It's beautiful. It's true of you. It's true of me. When you are being knitted in the womb of your mother, it says this. For you are being formed. (laughs) It says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God was at work in you. He's at work in the babies as they are being formed as well. The Bible also tells us in Luke 2 that babies can leap for joy in the womb. And we read of all human beings being made in the image of God. So therefore, on the basis of texts like this, the taking of such a life indeed is inconceivable according to our Bibles. Now, friends, this is an issue that we can stand for Jesus in this world on. Now, yes, I recognize there are many issues involved, like caring for mothers in crisis, caring for babies who are born into difficult circumstances. But my experience with Christians is that we're already there. Some of you are already there. We're caring for these mothers and their children already. I mean, the work of adoption and childcare in this church is amazing. We're already there. We're already there doing these things. We're caring for mothers and their children already. And may we continue to do so in the days ahead. We can read the news headlines, but we can also get our feet moving and help. We can do things in our world, and as we do such things as that, we make our stand for Jesus according to his heart for all those who are made in his image. That's what's at stake here. And I want to note one last thing here from the text on this issue. Uh, We can learn from Paul on this issue and any other thing that's controversial in our society. Even those in high places can be reminded of their faults and sins. We must be those who are bold to speak at those points. Yet, according to the law of God, these kind of public complaints should be made properly. We should be respectful. We, even in our critiques of others, should be pleasing to God. In love, we speak the truth. That's what the Bible says that we do as Christians. You see, Paul spoke boldly, but he did also speak respectfully. In the text, we see that he's standing in stark contrast to the rioting that's going on all around him. We see that very clearly. He was peaceable here, yet he was not at peace with the injustice that's going on right in front of his face. So let us be careful to live out our beliefs in the world and not live out things that are contrary to them. We should start with the word of God, then apply it to our own hearts, and then apply it outwardly in our lives. The order is important. It's important for our faithfulness of God to God, and it's important for our faithfulness to our neighbors as well. So, may we stand for Jesus with a clear conscience. That's first. Secondly, may we stand for Jesus with a clear message. We see this in verses 6 through 10. So, moving through this quickly. We finally see... An answer to the question that the Roman Tribune brought up. He has a clear message. So look down in verse 6. It says, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. And it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection from the dead that I am on trial. So we get the answer to our question here. Why is Paul such a lightning rod? It's because He believes in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that Jesus has resurrected from the grave. And it's in this hope and in this reality that propels him forward to tell others about it. But as is often the case, when religious people all get together, they're gonna argue. So that's what we see in verse seven, when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Now, I want to note here another ironic occurrence. Uh, The dissension that arises is certainly a division. We see that of the council members, but the word for dissension here is the very same word that's been using before, this uprising and riots. It's been happening in the crowds, but it's also happening in this public state of affairs. It's happening everywhere. So the council acts much the same as the crowds. And then Luke goes on. He tells us why this dissension occurred. Verse 8 For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So we see here that Paul is a master at reading the crowd. He's noticed that there's a theological division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he capitalized on it. So this defense, it certainly results in a division, but I suspect that Paul's purpose wasn't just that he would divide the crowd, but that he would again show that he's being upright. what he's doing. He's showing that I am indeed Jewish. After all, the resurrection is found in the Old Testament. And he's just showing that in those texts, those are authoritative as well. And the Jews should see these kinds of things, yet they don't see that the promise of a resurrection body, though they believe in it, did come true in Jesus. They missed out on that. They completely missed the point. So look what happens. A great clamor arises (laughs) and then the Pharisees, they stand up, they contend sharply and they're like, there's nothing wrong with this man. (laughs) So in the midst of all of this, you got this division and there's all kinds of chaos. So then all of a sudden the Pharisees are in support of Paul. They're like, what a crazy turn of events is going on here. So Paul used an argument, notice here, from the resurrection to get the Pharisees to support him. And they even leave open the possibility that a spirit or an angel even might have appeared to him and told him these kinds of things. But notice what they miss. What did appear to Paul? It was Jesus back in Acts chapter 9, but they had denied that very reality. The Son of God had revealed himself to them, but they don't leave open that possibility. They leave open any other possibility. So this is what leads us to the climax, what I see as the climax of the passage. The dissension becomes violent in verse 10. The tribune, he sees this and he's afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Now what happens? Now it's at this point that we're going through the passage and we're wondering, it seems like the absolute worst is about to happen. I mean, someone torn to pieces? Another group of people, these supposedly the distinguished ones, are violent against Paul, and they even threaten to tear him to pieces. As we read this, we remember things that happened to Stephen back in Acts chapter 8, brutally murdered for his testimony about Jesus. But memories of Jesus' own trial come up as well. It was before this very trial that Jesus was condemned to die on a Roman cross. We read about this in Luke chapter 21. So we ask the question, is Paul going to suffer the same fate? And it seems as if everything is lining up so that this would indeed be the case. Paul has stood for Jesus at his word with a clear message about the resurrection And it is precisely the truth of the resurrection that's dividing the crowd. And it should have been their saving grace, but ultimately it just leads to severe consequences for Paul. We ask the question when we arrive at this moment in the passage, might Paul also die? Now, Friends, I would like to say that it's unlikely that many of us will end up in a situation like this in similar circumstances, Uh, but each of us should ask this question. Do I know the clear message of the gospel? Do you know it? And you could ask yourself, could I stand for Jesus with such a clear message as Paul's? It's worth asking yourself this question. So if you had to share the truth that would lead someone to salvation in eternal life, could you do it? Now, if you worry about this, I want you to know that this is a great place to have that conversation. We love to talk about this. I would, in fact, be delighted to talk to you about this very thing. But even before you have a conversation with someone else, I want you to consider reading a couple passages in the Bible. There are some passages in the Bible that give you the complete, uh, succinct, and clear presentation of the Bible. So you can read passages like these. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, tells you the complete, succinct version of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 8, tells you the succinct story of the gospel. Or you want something even shorter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 4. These passages are things that we can know, we can remember, so we can be confident that we know the gospel message, one that saves us, but that can also save others. But I'd also like to recommend to you a book that we have. You walk by it when you come to church every morning. There's a book out in the lobby called, What is the Gospel?, I encourage you, grab that and read it. It would be very helpful to you, and uh, I think you would find it uh, very encouraging and helpful as you consider the gospel for yourself. But for some of us, uh, we do know the gospel message. So the next step for you and the question for you is not could you tell others, but would you? Would you tell the gospel? To others. If you were in a situation like this, would you say the same thing he did? Would you stand for Jesus in this same way? To hear, we ultimately find out that Paul does not suffer the same fate as Jesus or Stephen. And as we all wonder if he's going to get torn to pieces, he's amazingly saved yet again. But look who steps in it's the Roman soldiers, the Roman tribune. Look down at the end of that verse. The tribune commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So we reach a resolution. But the question we should ask is, why did Paul not die here? When Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, he was falsely accused, and yet he was brutally beaten and violently crucified on a cross. Why did that not happen to Paul? Why was Paul not torn to pieces? After all, didn't Stephen do that very same thing? It happened to him. And Paul was one standing there watching this happen to Stephen. Well, the passage ends, and it tells us why. And as we've seen Paul stand for Jesus at his word, we see, in conclusion, Jesus standing with Paul. So similarly, we can see that as we stand for Jesus at his word, Jesus will stand with us as well. So the second, last point of the message in verse 11, Jesus stands with you. As we stand for Jesus at his word, Jesus stands with us. So I want you to know that Jesus stands with you. Look at this last verse. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage. Did you know that God would say that to you in the dark moment of your soul? Take courage. I'm with you. It was a dark moment of the soul for Paul. He'd been beaten and bruised, and yet the Lord standed with him. Now, church family, we've gone through a pretty dark season ourselves, have we not? This morning, I'm preaching to you, but it wasn't supposed to be me. Aaron was supposed to be here preaching to you this morning. But if there is a truth that can comfort us in the midst of nights of the soul like this one. It's the reality that we see here. Jesus stands with us, and Jesus stands with you. What greater comfort can we have than this, and what greater comfort can we have in knowing that Aaron is in the uninhibited presence of Jesus right this moment? If we wonder where Aaron is, that's where he is. And that's where we will be if we trust in Christ by faith. So as we consider our own difficult moments, our own dark moments of the soul, as difficult topics arise in the world all around us and in our society, we can remember passages in the Bible. Think about the Old Testament. We can think about Daniel in the midst of lions, people all around him. We can remember that the Song of Solomon talks about this lily in the midst of thorns. We can remember Elisha who's surrounded by a great army of people. We can remember Israel trapped next to the Red Sea. We can remember someone like the poor widow who had nothing to give but a penny had nothing in this world. And then Paul takes all of these kinds of terrible situations that people in the Old Testament have looked on, and and now we're in the New Testament. Paul gives us assurance. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? We can take great comfort in this today. Jesus is with you. So Paul stood for Jesus at his word. So why was Paul not killed? The point, I believe here, is theological. Jesus was killed because it was his death that would give atonement on the cross. Paul was left alive because his words would testify to Jesus among the nations. Jesus would accomplish salvation. Paul would speak about the salvation that was accomplished. So from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the message of Jesus would continue to spread and Jesus would use Paul to do it that's what we read here. And that's what's going to happen in the rest of Acts. So in conclusion, I want to leave you with a little acrostic to remember, okay? I don't typically do this, but I think it's helpful for you to take something in your mind, take with you into this week. I get critiqued that I don't give you this, so I'm giving it to you. Here's what you can do. Stand for Jesus. S-T-A-N-D. Stand for Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. That's the first thing. Submit yourself to Jesus. That's the first thing we talked about. If you're going to take a stand for Jesus, take a stand for him in your own heart, against your own sin. Submit yourself to Jesus. T, tell others about Jesus. You can tell others about him. Take your stand and tell others the gospel message. A, you can act for Jesus in this world. You can do that in very real issues. You can act on behalf of Jesus as he stands with you in this world. And because I couldn't think of two, I'm putting them together. N.D., never doubt his presence with you. Never doubt it. And you laugh, but maybe it'll help you remember it this week. Never doubt his presence with you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus stands for us. He's triumphant in heaven at this very moment. And he stands with us as we proclaim him to others. So, last question for you. Why would you not make a stand for him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, and Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us a message that gives hope to the entire world through your resurrection. Lord, help us to stand for you in our hearts, in our relationships, in our world. Empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.